Today's episode is sponsored by Morgan Stanley. Can a building save energy, money, and maybe your job? The Bullet Center in Seattle is a sustainable building icon, but the impact of this sort of construction can ripple across the economy and into the bottom line. Hear the full podcast at morganstanley.com slash podcast. Morgan Stanley & Co., LLC, member SIPC. Opening bell in about 20 seconds. Let me just set the stage for you. Money, money, I want more money. You cannot have it all. This whole system is too confusing. Hi, I'm Ben White, and this is Politico Money. This week, we're joined by Ambassador Michael Froman, the former United States Trade Representative, served as the top trade negotiator under President Barack Obama. And we get into the very different view the Trump administration takes on trade than the Obama administration. We talk about trade deficits, whether they're inherently bad or not. We talk about NAFTA uh, with the Trump administration's threats to pull out of it and what we might have lost uh, in the Trump administration's decision to reject a big Asia-Pacific trade deal that the Obama administration negotiated. And we find out if Mike Froman is, in fact, related to Abe Froman, the sausage king of Chicago. You'll have to listen further to find out. So we hope you enjoy this podcast. And remember, if you're loving Politico money, please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Rate us and write us a written review. Uh, Still loving getting all your feedback. And remember, next week's episode will be a special on Bitcoin. So if you have thoughts on that, uh, please do reach out to me. You can follow me on Twitter at MorningMoneyBen, and you can email me on bwhite at politico.com. But without further ado, let's get to our conversation with Mike Froman. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for, uh, for having me. Yeah, appreciate it. Um, first question I have to ask you is, I said to my wife that I was coming down to interview Mike Froman, and she said, wait, you mean the sausage king of Chicago? Well, do you ever get that joke? I, I imagine I you I get do. it quite a bit, and worse than that, my father's name is Abe. Oh my God, your father's so name the, is Abe Froman. So the line from Ferris Bueller's Day Off about Abe Froman, the sausage <laughs> king of Chicago, is... Uh, all the more, all the more apt. I know. I wonder if our uh, millennial listeners will get that reference to Ferris Bueller. Uh, I'm hoping that I'm not so old that that's not relatable now, anymore. You know, and, they, yeah. and they've even done a sort of a redo. A, a redo. Of it. Uh, yeah. Um, all right. Let's pull back the lens a little bit. We're a year into the Trump White House. He won the White House in part uh, on an argument that we have made all of these disastrous trade deals and that they've hurt our manufacturing base, they've hurt people's wages, and that he was going to totally shake up the system. And uh, obviously, he killed the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which we can talk about uh, a little bit later, something you spent a lot of time working on. Um, But given that we have a year of evidence uh, on the Trump administration's approach to trade, what is your assessment of it? There's a a few things he hasn't done. He hasn't yet unilaterally pulled out of NAFTA. Uh, He has not yet unilaterally pulled out of the trade agreement we have with South Korea, and we're not in a trade war with China, as some people feared. Uh, So some of the worst fears of free trade proponents haven't really come to pass yet, although there's some fears that they could in 2018. In terms of Trump the candidate and what he said versus Trump the president and what he's done on trade, how do you assess that? Well, look, I think it's still early days. I think, as you said, there's been a bit more rhetoric than action on some of these points. Um, But I think we're already seeing the effects of uh, even the rhetoric and the pulling back of leadership from the international system, including the international trading system. Uh, There's no doubt in my mind that 
in retrospect, historians will view the U.S. withdrawal from TPP as one of the most significant strategic blunders in recent uh, in recent years. And we are seeing that exactly the, what we warned about about moving not moving ahead with TPP that it would create a void that China would be all too willing to to fill, and that other countries would move on without us. And that's exactly what's happening now. And so, if you look over the course of the last year. Uh, President Trump withdrew U- the U.S. from TPP, I think, in his third day in office. Uh, a few days later, President Xi went to Davos, declared China to be the leader of the free trade system, notwithstanding the fact that its policies are anything but free trade oriented. The One Belt, One Road summit in May, where President Xi was able to bring together more than 30 world leaders into China's strategic vision for the region, and that a region pretty broadly defined. Uh, the uh, the G20, where rather than being the focus of the G20, China was able to join the majority and put the focus on the United States and its defense of protectionism. Uh, and then the, the Party Congress just last month, where President Xi consolidated power and laid out a vision for China, very much uh, um, seeking global dominance in a number of, of key sectors at the expense of other countries, including the United States. So we've seen it play out exactly as we feared, which is if the U.S. withdraws from leadership, uh, other countries will naturally be drawn to uh, to China. China will step forward, and we're going to find agreements and arrangements put in place that, rather than reflecting our interests and our values, reflect China's. And that cannot be in the interests of American workers or farmers or ranchers or businesses. And we're seeing that um, really day in and day out as as uh, as China moves forward. The other part of it is, of course, other countries aren't standing standing still. And so the European Union is signing trade agreements uh, with countries around the, around the world. Uh, Australia is, Canada is seeking closer relations with China. So is Mexico. So is South Korea. And other, we're going to find that markets that we should be able to access, that our the products made by American workers and American farmers and ranchers, that they should be able to sell abroad, that those markets are going to be taken by their competitors from other countries. It's already happening in a number of sectors. Yeah. Um, explain to people a little bit. The TPP we're talking about is the Trans-Pacific Partnership was a trade deal. Uh, I'll let you explain it, exactly what it would have done, and tell us what we're missing out on. What is our economy missing out on now uh, that we've backed away from it, that we have not joined this agreement? And as you say, others are moving forward, and China is moving to replace us as the leading trade uh, mover and shaker in the Asia-Pacific region. So tell us exactly what TPP was and what we're missing out. So the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, uh, is an agreement that was originally negotiated among 12 countries, representing about 40% of the global economy. Large countries, small countries, developed, developing countries. Uh, it would have opened markets for our exports and increased our exports by some estimates $350 billion uh, a year. Uh, it would have raised standards around the region, labor and environmental standards, and made them fully enforceable by by trade sanctions. It would have put disciplines on state-owned enterprises for the first time. It would have defined rules for the digital economy so that uh, not just our internet companies, but any company, any manufacturing company that relies on the free flow of data across borders would have uh, the assurance they need to be able to to to, to grow their uh, to grow their business. Um, it would have strengthened intellectual property rights protection and at the same time make sure that people have access to the products of, of innovation. So it would have updated the the uh, international trading system, including NAFTA, by the way, because Mexico and Canada were part of TPP. Uh, it would have updated those agreements and really brought it into the 21st century. By withdrawing the U.S. from it, 
Um, clearly, we've lost a lot of the strategic benefit of us being uh, very much embedded in the Asia-Pacific region and our allies and partners working with us rather than with, with China. We've also lost market access, our, our ability to get into Japan, for example, with our beef or our pork or uh, our services or our cars. Um, those were all things we negotiated in TPP that uh, now we will not be able to benefit from because the U.S. has withdrawn um, and as other countries go forward with their own preferential trade agreements, uh, our competitors abroad will get that access rather than us. So it's both a market access question, but it's also who's going to set the rules of the road for the global trading system. Is it going to be us or is it going to be China? Yeah. I want to talk about the kind of political constituency for free trade. Is still a large wing of the Republican Party that is pro-free trade, Republican economists, uh, members of Congress. Trump has obviously moved the party away from that uh, with his populist campaign. But even during the 2016 campaign, towards the end of it, uh, Hillary Clinton had essentially moved away from TPP as well, given that there is a lot of opposition in the Democratic Party to free trade deals, uh, particularly coming from Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and the more progressive liberal wing of the Democratic Party. So it's kind of hard for me to see now uh, how the general consensus that free trade deals are generally good for America, good for workers, that uh, you're you know growing the economic pie and giving people more opportunities to sell stuff abroad and lowering barriers. How do you get back to the point where that is more of a consensus, that uh, free trade is not scary, is not killing all our jobs and depressing wages? Um, how, how does that come back, the idea that free trade is good, where both parties seem to be kind of moving away from that? Well, you know, I actually think the American public sometimes gets it better than the leaders of the respective parties or the activists of each of the of each of the parties. Uh, uh, if you look at the Pew Foundation polls, which are sort of the, some of the best polling out there, they've been doing it for for decades. More than seventy percent of the American public now support trade. They've long supported trade as being good for them as consumers, but for the first time, fifty six percent of the American public believes that it's good for creating jobs in the United States. Uh, as you said, actually, we've seen the most pro-trade cohort in the United States are young Democrats. Yeah. Uh, the least pro-trade cohort are middle-aged Republicans, mm-hmm. and we saw that play out a bit uh, in, in, in the last election. Uh, but you know, right now, more than 70 percent of Democrats favor NAFTA. Mm. You wouldn't know that necessarily from the party activists or uh, some of the party leaders, um, but uh, uh, but certainly the public out there, I think, gets it. We need to do a better job of explaining it, of course, and appealing on an emotional level, not just on a, on a statistical uh, level, level, technical yeah. level uh, to this. But look, I, Ben, I think the, the bigger problem is is that uh, the, the economic concerns that people have about about wage stagnation, about income inequality, those are real and, and legitimate. And that's what we've seen over the last 15 years, although in the last few years, of course, we've seen some ticking up of wages, about 2.5% a year over the last few, each of the last few years. Economists will tell us uh, that the vast majority of the effect on wages and jobs, over 80%, is due to technology. And certainly some percentage is due to globalization. But it's, there's a difference between globalization and trade agreements. Globalization is a fact of life. Trade agreements is how you shape globalization. If we, raise, if we use our trade agreements to raise labor standards or environmental standards in Mexico or Vietnam, we're leveling the playing field for our workers. 
It's a good in and of itself because we care about the dignity of work. We care about protecting the environment. But it's also very much about making sure that our workers are competing on a more level playing field with workers in other countries who also have to and have the ability to uh, exercise labor rights and live by environmental regulations. So um, uh, I think that's a, a key part of it. But you don't get to vote on technology. You don't get to vote on globalization. You do get to vote on trade agreements. They become a bit of a scapegoat right. for quite legitimate economic anxieties. Mm -hmm. I think that's what we saw play out over the last year. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about trade deficits for a minute uh, because in the Trump worldview, trade deficits are inherently bad. We are losing to Mexico because we have a trade deficit with Mexico, losing to China because we have a trade deficit there. Uh, Robert Lighthizer, your successor as U.S. trade rep, subscribes to that view uh, Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, subscribes to that view. There are others within the administration who don't. Um, but what it, are trade deficits inherently bad? My view is that they're not. And uh, uh, it's a gross oversimplification to talk about them the way that Trump talks about them. But tell me your view on the way Trump talks about trade deficits, meaning America is losing and getting crushed and embarrassed by all of these trading partners. Well, I agree with you that it's a gross oversimplification to make trade deficits the metric of what is a good trading relationship or a, a bad trading relationship. Uh, any legitimate economist will tell you that the trade deficit reflects broader macroeconomic factors, including, you know, our low, if we save less money here, if we have a low savings rate, uh, we're going to end up bringing in um, uh, products. If we spend more, we're going to end up importing more. Um, and uh, that will increase the trade deficit. And so it, it's, it's a mathematical equation between savings and investment on one side and these imbalances uh, on, uh, uh, on the other. The irony, of course, is that if the Trump administration is successful in pursuing a number of its other policies, including this tax cut, which will reduce savings by $1.5 trillion, um, if they are successful in getting growth in the U.S. economy up to 3% on a sustainable basis, we're going to see the trade deficit increase, not decrease. And so if you're going to make the trade deficit the be-all and end-all of your economic policy, um, you're, you're going to find yourself uh, setting yourself up for failure. And I think that's, uh, that's the concern that we have here. Now, if, if a trade deficit with a particular country reflects the fact that they're keeping our products out of their market or that they're dumping their products in our market, well, those are legitimate issues for trade policy to deal with, whether it's through negotiations or, or through enforcement. Um, but uh, there's, there's a big difference between that and, and the, the degree to which trade policy can affect trade deficits and the broader macroeconomic framework for imbalances. Yeah. Um, we were talking about Doug Palmer, a great trade reporter, and he I want to give him a shout out because he sent some ideas for questions. And um, one of the things he sent, which I hadn't seen, was a quote from Wilbur Ross, which I think was this week. Uh, where he talks about TPP and the Asia strategy that the Trump administration is pursuing. I, I just want to read it to you, and I'm sure you've seen it and get your reaction to it. Uh, he says, we're not withdrawing from Asia. To the contrary, the new Asia-Pacific strategy is more encompassing than even the TPP would have been. Our goal is a rules-based economic order with fair and equal market access. So he's basically saying what they're going to do is better than TPP uh, and that we're not withdrawing from Asia. What was your reaction to that? Well, look, I, I, uh, I think it's, it's a positive sign if they're saying we're not withdrawing from Asia. That is not the perception in Asia. Uh, when you go out and talk to uh, uh, Asian business people or, or Asian leaders, their view is that the U.S. Um, is, is in retreat. Um, um, and so it is now incumbent on the administration to lay out, well, what is its new strategy? 
the uh, Secretary Tillerson uh, and President Trump talked a bit about this Indo-Asian uh, uh, strategy. I think we were all looking to President Trump's trip to Asia last month as an opportunity for him to flush that out in greater detail, including what role trade plays in that and what the substitute for TPP is going uh, to be. Uh, we didn't hear much of that on uh, during the trip. Uh, President Trump did say the U.S. stands ready to negotiate bilateral trade agreements uh, on our terms with whoever wants to come and do so. No country has taken us up uh, on that uh, yet, and they're all watching the NAFTA renegotiation quite closely to see how the this administration approaches it and whether this is a uh, an effort they want to get involved in. Uh, and what you saw is in Asia, the other 11 countries of TPP deciding last month they're going to move on with TPP without the United States and put it in place. And other countries have also expressed interest in joining that right. uh, once they do. And so um, uh, it, certainly it's every new administration has the right to come in and lay out a new strategy, including uh, one towards uh, the Asia-Pacific, we haven't quite seen that fleshed out in concrete terms. Um, and if, if Secretary Ross has an idea about what they're going to do that is bigger and broader than TPP, uh, we're all eager to hear what that is. When we come back, much more with Mike Froman, the former U.S. trade representative. But now, a word from our sponsor. A message from Morgan Stanley. Can a building save energy, money, and maybe your job? The designers of the Bullet Center in Seattle wanted to create a commercial building that could generate enough energy to sustain itself. But they also wanted to create an inspirational workplace that would encourage companies to think differently about office buildings. The impact of this sort of sustainable construction can ripple across the economy and into the bottom line, as corporations consider large-scale economic factors such as global demand, government regulations, and job creation when it comes to investment choices. Hear the full podcast at morganstanley.com slash podcast. Morgan Stanley & Co., LLC, member SIPC. Um, I want to get back into some wonky questions about trade deals and, and all that sort of thing, but I want to ask you a little bit about Trump's Washington versus Obama's Washington. Uh, very different places. Um, this president operates in a way that we really have never seen before in terms of his uh, engagement on Twitter. Uh, there is obviously the ongoing Russia investigation and his response to that. Um, it, it seems like everybody I talked to for these podcasts who uh, worked in the Obama administration or even who worked in previous Republican administrations has had a hard time navigating this world and understanding it. Um, how you're still in D.C. after working for President Obama, like how does this town feel different to you now uh, under Trump than it did uh, when President Obama was uh, was president? Well, look, I think we're all going to learn a lot um, over the course of this presidency about the presidency, uh, about the nature of our institutions, um, what works and what doesn't. Things that we took for granted were a matter of law now seem to be more a matter of custom. Um, and we're going to learn where we have strengths and weaknesses in, in our system of checks and balances. Mm -hmm. um, what know. are you referring to specifically there on um, you know, matters of law that are in a ma matters of custom? Are you thinking about sort of the separation uh, at the Justice Department between you know, the, the White House and the Justice Department and the president's seeming desire to kind of – I, I heard on the Justice Department. You know, I, I was I was specifically thinking of ethics mm -hmm. when when I went into the White House, when my colleagues went into the uh, White House or, or the rest of the administration. Uh, we all 
lived by a very strict set of ethics guidelines uh, uh, that affected um, uh, we, we aligned our personal finances with those ethics guidelines. We took direction from the Office of Government uh, Ethics. Uh, we view that as an obligation. Um, in this situation, we've learned that even if the Office of Government Ethics has uh, problems with what individuals have done in the administration, there is really no way to enforce that. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. if your Justice Department isn't going to enforce it, I guess, um, then it really is a more a matter of, of custom. Right. Um, and I think uh, uh, I think that's an important lesson we're now learning um, out of this uh, out of this experience. There are many others as, as well, but uh, you know, I think the, the judiciary has played a very active role as a check and balance. Um, Republican leaders in Congress, not so much, mm-hmm. um, in yeah. terms of of, of checking uh, exactly. the, the the president and the executive in ways that you might have. Um, thought possible given their position on various policy issues. Speaking of just sort of Obama administration versus Trump administration, your your office is right by the White House. You're around the corner from uh, Bob Lighthizer, who's the current USTR, and you mentioned beforehand that you had lunch with him. Like, how do you interact with Trump administration officials on you know trade policy or anything else? Are they interested in your views and feedback? Obviously, they take a very different view, but uh, do you have good relationships, cordial relationships? Do they care what you have to say? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think we have cordial relationships, and I, I've made it clear. Look, trade has been an area of historically of of bipartisanship. Uh, and when I was appointed U.S. Trade Representative, there's a tradition that all the former trade representatives, Democratic and Republican, get together and take the new one out to dinner, and and they're a, a group of support because they've been through the same set of experiences um, uh, that that uh, that I was starting uh, to to go through. Um, so uh, I've certainly made uh, myself available to anybody who who wants to call. I do talk to people periodically. Whether or not they take my advice, that's mm. another that's a, that's another that's another issue. Um, but. Uh, uh, but but uh, I, I certainly are. Uh, um, we we certainly we, you know let me let me just say I, I, we want I think it's an all over whether we agree on some of the substantive provisions or not. I think we share the perspective that we want the U.S. to be successful and we want U.S. leadership to be successful. And ultimately, what we care about is that there's credibility in the U.S. as a leader around the world because that has tremendous benefits. Um, the rest of the world wants to work with the United States. Um, and they want to find ways of accommodating each new administration. But there's got to be that kind of engagement with them in a respectful way um, that gives them the incentives to work with us and that credibility as a partner that gives them the the, the, the foundation on which to, to work with us to try and get things done. Yeah, I wonder um, – I mean obviously I think we talked about this, you and I, before the election and uh, as uh, Secretary Clinton was kind of – moving a little bit away from TPP that, you know, you put so much time and effort into this and, uh, you know, so much goes into negotiating these agreements and all of the weeds you have to get into on each individual industry, all that stuff. Anyway, this was a big piece of your life was uh, putting together TPP and obviously had the support of President Obama. And it, it kind of has gone away. Did you go through a period of depression over that? And do you no. think that it's going to come back? Like, is there value to the work that you did that can be resurrected? And- yeah, no, first of all, I think it, it may be an occupational hazard of, of trade negotiators, but you have to be optimistic. You know, otherwise, you couldn't do that, that job. Um, I'm, I think it's quite interesting that the TPP 11, the other 11 countries are moving forward with TPP without the United States because of the value they see in the rules that we all defined together and in the market access, the breaking down of barriers that we were able to, uh, that we were able to achieve. Uh, I think it's interesting that other countries want to join them when they're done. 
Uh, I think it's interesting that in the NAFTA renegotiation, the vast majority of the text that's on the table is TPP. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, there are a number of new items that the administration is pursuing, and those will determine whether the negotiation succeeds or fails. But the fact that that we are building on what was done in TPP in these other mechanisms, at the end of the day, uh, it may not be as elegant as we designed it. We may have lost a lot of the strategic benefit that came from uh, TPP in terms of, of, of being a major presence in the Asia-Pacific uh, region. But I think it's in all of our interest that these high standard rules, whether it's on labor or environment or state-owned enterprises or the digital economy, that those get put into place mm-hmm. and that those influence global trade. And whether it's through NAFTA or the TPP-11 or other negotiations that are going on that are drawing from the TPP text, I'm actually quite quite, uh, quite optimistic. Um, just give me the quick, like, let's say we wake up tomorrow and Trump has uh, announced that he's pulling out of NAFTA. Like, within the first week of that happening, what, what's the fallout? What's the outcome? Like, I would assume markets would uh, take a serious tumble on that kind of news. But short term, what would happen? It's always hard to, and one should always be wary of predicting markets. You yeah. know that but I don't than think anybody. they would like it. Uh, but but you're likely to see instability. Uh, yeah. That's certainly the case. You know, people would argue that uh, you're likely to see a depreciation of the peso, which of course would lead to a greater uh, trade, deficit trade deficit with Mexico. Right. Lots I mean, of ironically, these policies that are going to increase exactly. the trade deficit rather than bring it down. Exactly. So a lot of what, what's being talked about could actually be quite quite counterproductive. Um, you know, a number of the proposals the administration have put on the table, including uh, sunsetting the agreement after five years. You know, it, it, that means that the agreement would go away unless there's an affirmative decision to put it back uh, into place. It's very hard for companies to make investment decisions on the basis. A lot of, of certainty a, involved in that type of No, and that's what they're counting on. They're right. counting on the fact that if there's that uncertainty, then investors won't go to Mexico. Right. They won't go to Canada. They'll stay here in the United States. Mm. Certainly, we want to see more economic activity here in the United States. That's a goal that we that we all uh, we all share. But if the choice is, if 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 producing a product 100% in the United States is going to make us globally non-competitive, well, then we're going to see all that that uh, production move somewhere else. And that's not in our interest. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Trump of the campaign trail and the populist kill all trade agreements um, candidate versus how he's governed on trade. And we didn't really get into the fact that, you know, everybody was worried about this trade war we get into with China that we haven't, uh, that there'd be a quicker pullout of NAFTA. So you say, he didn't sign TPP. That's a big deal. But there's a chance Hillary Clinton would have, wouldn't have done that either, given what she said on the campaign trail. Like, I guess what I'm trying to get to is, is the Trump administration policy on trade so far, granted it's early days and a lot could happen next year and subsequent uh, two years or more uh, of the Trump presidency. But is it that different than what a Hillary Clinton trade policy would have looked like? Well, look, it's hard, it's hard to know because obviously uh, Secretary Clinton would have her own perspective as she came into to, to office and her own people to to implement that. You know, I, I would say, I, I think, let's take China as an example. I think there have been quite mixed messages sent to China. Uh, a lot of hot rhetoric uh, during the campaign talking about China really as almost an existential threat to the United States. Then very, there was, there was the debate about the one China policy. Uh, there was talk about finding China to be a currency manipulator. All of that fell by the wayside. There was a very warm embrace at, at Mar-a-Lago, yeah. very positive comments about President 
Xi, and I think the Chinese have been very successful mm. in pulling the administration into their form of dialogue, which is based on flattery, based on you know, the wonderful state Are you plus plus. Visit. That President Trump likes flattery and enjoys to <laughs> hear positive things about himself, uh, I, uh, or calls Vladimir Putin uh, to thank him uh, for his flattery. Um, I, I, wouldn't, we I wouldn't be so. I wouldn't be so presumptuous. Be so bold. Uh, but I think the the challenge is, uh, you know, as a Chinese uh, official said to me earlier in the year. We understand how important tweetable deliverables are to this president. Yes. And we're prepared to give him tweetable deliverables. Yes. Uh, tweetable deliverables are easy. You know, the shopping list approach. Right. We'll buy so many airplanes yep. and so many soybeans and we'll invest uh, so many billions of dollars in the Midwest. And you leave us alone right. on Taiwan, on Tibet, on human rights, uh, on fundamental economic reforms. Mm-hmm. And if that's the deal that we're falling into – and uh, from the president's recent trip to China, it was all about the shopping list yes. and nothing about the fundamental economic reforms, then that's a problem. Mm-hmm. That's a problem because that gives China more of a free reign to, to move ahead with policies, whether it's propping up state-owned enterprises or enhancing excess capacity in ways that have a detrimental effect on, on our workers and our businesses. We're going to let you go soon, but I want to just go through a couple of other things I didn't get to. And one of them is this threat to pull out of the uh, South Korean trade deal that we have, Chorus, uh, uh, for the wonk world. Uh, how damaging would it be if you were to pull out of that? And how would that impact kind of the geopolitics with, uh, with North Korea uh, if we had this kind of economic standoff with South Korea? Well, look, I, I think uh, um, it, from an economic point of view, it's a relatively modest size agreement for uh, the U.S. It's significant for Korea, but modest for uh, the United States. And if there are problems with how it's been implemented, then certainly there is there are mechanisms for addressing those problems, and I hope the administration pursues that. I think the challenge is at a time when South Korea is facing uh, the threat from the north um, to have this also on – their play with the U.S. threatening to pull out of this agreement has only pushed South Korea in the direction of China. I mean, China's put a lot of pressure on South Korea around the deployment of the FAD missiles. Uh, They made life very difficult for some South Korean companies as a way of of throwing their weight around. Mm -hmm. Uh, We now see that South Korea is reengaged with China to have closer economic ties. Is it in our interest that we're pushing one of our closest military allies into the arms of the Chinese? I don't think so. It seems like a rhetorical no there. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that unsaid. You, you go ahead uh, with that. And then just lastly on, on NAFTA, the specifics that uh, the Trump administration is talking about changing to update it, make it better. Uh, you say a lot of it comes from TPP. But are you generally in alignment with what they want to do uh, as part of these NAFTA changes is what they're asking for? Good and is there an opportunity coming out of that if you know it doesn't break down and there's not a unilateral pullout that we could have a better NAFTA under Donald Trump? Well, I think NAFTA is certainly uh, in need of updating. That's why we um, renegotiated in the context of, of TPP. For example, you got Mexico to agree to binding and enforceable labor and environmental provisions, which was not in NAFTA. Um, we got them to agree to opening their energy market uh, to U.S. participation, um, strengthening some of their investment protections, their intellectual property, their disciplines on state-owned enterprises, all of that. Uh, it was in was in TPP. I hope that makes its way into the renegotiated NAFTA that the administration is seeking. You know, in terms of their new proposals, I think you have to look at, at each one uh, separately. Um, the rules of origin, which is a highly, highly technical, archaic area of trade. I, don't, I won't 
bore your listeners by going into great detail. Yeah, we're eventually going to have a glossary that uh, Bridget, my producer, and I have <laughs> talked about to give people definitions of these and, and rules of origin might get in there, but we don't have to get deep right. into that. But you know, we all want to see more product made in America. There's no doubt about it. If you set the rules at such a high level, though, um, you may find that companies say, well, it's just not worth it to use the benefits of NAFTA. We'd rather pay the 2.5% tariff on autos than redesign our entire um, uh, supply chain um, at a cost of tens of billions of dollars. And so it's a, there's always a balance to be struck. We, we revise the rules of origin in TPP to deal with some of the weaknesses of NAFTA and close some of the loopholes. They have a different approach. We'll see how that uh, uh, we, we'll see how that plays out. I think the one that's probably more troublesome is the idea that it should sunset after five years. And you can just imagine that that, that that is a recipe for killing NAFTA. That's what all the proponents of the sunset provision have really been uh, have really been after. And uh, I, I hope there are there are ways and some flexibility in terms of how to deal with with that demand at the end of the day. Okay. Last thing I want to ask you is to kind of look in the crystal ball a little bit uh, for the full duration of the Trump presidency or the first term anyway, four years of Trump policy towards uh, trade. Um, and, it, you know, if if it continues along the course that it's going now, uh, they continue to, you know, try to get rid of multilateral trade agreements and do uh, bilateral trade agreements. Um, who knows what winds up happening with NAFTA. But if the general Trump view that a lot of these trade deals are garbage and need to be gone or renegotiated prevails. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the idea that uh, we can be protectionist in general and that will make our economy better um, prevails over four years. What will the U.S. look like? What will the U.S. economy look like after four years of Trumpism and the general approach, approach to trade? Yeah, you know, look, we, we have benefited enormously over, from the system that we created <laughs> over the last 70 years of creating a rules-based system that have kept other countries uh, generally in line. It's not perfect. There are always areas for, uh, that, are, are, that merit uh, improvement, but we shouldn't underestimate how much we have benefited from the fact that uh, we've been able to export now more than $2 trillion a year of goods and services, that supports more than 14 million jobs in the United States, that those jobs tend to pay 18% more on average than non-export-related jobs. So you know, we are a key part of the global economy, and it's because of the system that we created. If we're to dismantle that system, we don't know what's going to come next. If every country around the, uh, the world can act unilaterally, and if the U.S. starts acting unilaterally, it will just give license to everybody else to do so uh, as well. We're going to find ourselves facing 190 countries who, whenever there are protectionist pressures, they act to keep our products out. We actually – we're not a very protectionist country. You know, We're a very open market. Our tariffs are very low. We don't use regulations as a barrier to trade. And we have checks and balances within our system. People who rely on the imports for inputs into the manufacturing process, for example, that keep us from being overly protectionist. Other countries are not so constrained. Mm -hmm. So if we open the door, we, we open Pandora's box to unilateralism, and we face that kind of unilateralism by all of our trading partners, with 95% of the world's consumers outside the United States, we're going to end up being at the, at the short end of that stick. And that's what I worry about. And uh, I, I do hope at the end of the day um, that uh, we find our way back to strengthening the rules-based trading system, finding areas that need reform and improvement, uh, but not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. I mean, do you think that's essentially what's going on here is that the Trump administration is looking to dismantle 70 years of um, a rules-based trading system with the U.S. trying to set those rules and 
lower tariffs uh, in general and open more markets? I mean, are they trying to break down what the U.S. has built over seven decades? You know, I think there's a lot of skepticism about the system that's been built up and um, and perhaps an insufficient appreciation of how much is at stake. If you look at just the, the how the various trade rounds that we've had around the world, they're estimated to have contributed $14,000 to every family's income in terms of being able to, to buy clothing and back-to-school items and food you know, at relatively modest prices. You start closing our markets. You start putting up protectionist barriers. It's going to have an immediate impact on people's wallets at home. And I'm not sure people fully appreciate that you know, that's what's really at stake is seeing a decline of our standard of living, not an increase. Ambassador Michael Froman, son of the Sausage King of Chicago, uh, we really appreciate your taking the time to, uh, to speak to us. And uh, thanks for joining uh, Politico Money. Thanks for having me. And that's a wrap for this week's edition of the Politico Money Podcast. Hope you enjoyed Mike Froman. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Give us a written review and rate us. And remember, we'll be back with you next week with a special Bitcoin episode. We're going to try to figure out if this thing is good. Is it bad? Is it evil? Is it the future? I'm very confused by it. I'm very scared by it. So we're going to have some experts and a Politico star explain to us exactly what Bitcoin is, what the future of it is. And hopefully by the end of it, you and I will have a better understanding of why this thing is now so incredibly expensive and popular. So please do tune in for the Bitcoin special coming next. And thank you as always to my producer, Bridget Mulcahy. Thanks to Mike Froman, and we'll see you next week.